listening to audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit twinvillageschurch.org. Um, so this morning we are going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Uh, this is the temptation of Jesus. This follows on the heels, um, if you remember, um, of the baptism of Jesus and the genealogy, and we looked at that last week. Um, we looked at the baptism of Jesus and how we had uh, the testimony of the Father and of the Son concerning, of the Father and the Holy Spirit, rather, concerning the Son. So we had all the members of the Trinity together at the baptism of Jesus. And then we looked um, briefly at the Luke's genealogy of Jesus, and we focused on David and Abraham and Adam, and how Jesus is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the only one who gives us true blessing um, that comes through faith in Him. And Jesus is the one who identifies with all of humanity, and His salvation is for all people. Right, and now this morning, we look at, like, this is the last step, if you will, in Jesus being prepared for His public ministry, right? And that is Him undergoing 40 days of temptation. And so we will unpack this this morning, and, and I want to give a little disclaimer here. Um, we have a lot of things to kind of talk about and I will not be able to get to all the things that I do want to talk about. And so what that means is if you're sitting here this morning and you hear something, you're like, boy, gee, I wish you would unpack that a little bit more for me. Uh, that means that you're being prompted to go home and study and unpack it for yourself and do homework. Right? I can't cover everything. Right, I'd love to, but you don't want to be here for six hours, right? And so that is. So what I want to do, I want to encourage you to, when you hear those things, dig, right? Be a people. We want to be a church that is in the Word of God, that is studying the Word of God. So when you hear those things, when you wrestle with those things, you have the freedom and the ability to do that work, right? And trust me, as a pastor, as an elder, and the other elders, I will speak on behalf of them, nothing would thrill us more than to hear of how you're digging into the Word of God and seeking to understand it. We love, love, love to hear those things. So let me uh, read for us Luke 4, verses 1 to 13, and I'll ask you to please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word this morning, and then I will pray for us, and then we will have, we'll have fun this morning in the Word of God. <laughs> Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. 
And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the tests. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the gift of your words. Lord, I thank you for the example of your one and only Son, Jesus, who shows us the power of your word, who relies on your word, the authority of your word to combat temptation. Lord, it's my prayer that we would learn from that example, that we would be encouraged by that example, that we would take your word, Lord, that we would memorize it, that we would study it, that we would know it. And so, Lord, this morning as we spend time in your word, Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to be moved um, by the power of your words, that we would be encouraged and challenged and equipped um, for the rest of our week and for the rest of our days. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So as we have come to understand and see and hopefully appreciate uh, when it comes to Luke, Luke always starts off these, these little events that he describes. Um, he sets the table, if you will. He kind of sets the, the setting and gives us the setting of each event and each episode. And he does the same here in Luke chapter 4 in those first two verses. He lets us know that Jesus, when he full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He returned from being baptized by John and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. And while he was there, he was tempted by Satan. And that Jesus ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they ended, those 40 days ended, right, Jesus was, was hungry. And what I want us to see first and foremost here is the fact that in that, verse, that first verse, so in Luke 4, verse 1, the Holy Spirit is mentioned twice. And this makes it clear that Jesus, being in the wilderness, was not random. He didn't get lost. It wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't an accident that Jesus was there, but it was ordained by the Father. It was the Holy Spirit that led him into the wilderness. And you can read and mark Right? Mark's account of the temptation, Mark's a lot more just kind of graphic and to the point. He was pushed there, driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Right? But God is behind us, and we need to spend a few moments unpacking that a little bit. But this isn't much different than what happened to Simeon. If you go back to Luke chapter 2, verse 27, right? when Simeon was led to the temple by, by whom? By, by the Holy Spirit. Same idea. Right? This is an activity of God. It was God-ordained. It was His sovereign plan. In His providence, in God's providence, Jesus was now led out into the wilderness. And we read that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Right? And now, for, remember last week, right, there's this tension between Jesus being fully man and fully God. And being fully God, He didn't need the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit. Right? There's this tension here. But when Luke talks about 
someone being full of the Holy Spirit, what Luke is describing for us is someone, is a spiritual person, right? They're in tune with, with God's. And so that's what we see here, right? In Jesus' ministry all through the book of Luke and in every gospel, it's characterized by the presence and the leading of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was in tune with God. Jesus was doing what? He was doing the, the will of the Father who sent him, right? That is the idea here with Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit and God leading him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, if you think back to uh, earlier in Luke chapter 3 with John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist was in the wilderness. And we talked briefly about how the wilderness was a place of a desolation. In the Old Testament, it was a place that was, that was cursed. You did not want to be in the wilderness. But the Old Testament prophets were anticipating this day when the wilderness setting, right, of desolation and of cursing would be transformed by what? The power and the presence of God. And now you have Jesus in the wilderness, God the Son, going to be dealing with temptation in the wilderness. And he was led there to be tested by or to be tempted by the devil. Satan is the one responsible for the testing of Jesus. Satan is the one who is responsible for the testing of Jesus. If we pause for a moment, we have to think through this. Right? James 1.13 is very helpful. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. We think of the book of Job, right, where Satan comes to God, and God inquires of him and says, Have you considered my servant Job? And God gives Satan liberty. and gives, Remember, Satan's on a leash, right, to do that and to, to test Job. And see, when, when God tests people, when God brings tests to us, right, trials, Right? Why does he do that? He does that for us to, to grow, right? to grow in our knowledge of him, to be strengthened in our faith and trust and obedience to God's. When Satan tempts people, right? when Satan brings temptation, what, he's out, what is he out to do? Kill, steal, and destroy. It's different. Right? But God in his sovereignty allows this temptation to come to his son, Jesus. Right? He's not the one tempting. Satan is the one tempting. God in his sovereignty and in his providence allows temptation in our lives, but he's not the one who's tempting. Right? It's our own, perhaps, sinful desires that do that. So what we're confronted with right in these first two verses right, is this, this mystery of the, the providence of God. And while God allows for the devil's existence, God is sovereign over him, right? And our, and our finite minds can't comprehend this. We can't wrap our heads around this. But God 
has good plans in store. God is about His glory and making His name great. And He will accomplish that even when it comes to Satan. That God will use him to serve His purposes. And we need to look no further than the cross. And what God has accomplished through the cross of His Son, Jesus. But we read that, that Jesus was tempted for 40 days. All 40 days. And these last three temptations that we're going to look at briefly this morning are the culmination of those 40 days. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. And Luke makes a point to say at the end of verse 2, right, he was, he was hungry. Jesus was at his weakest point physically. That would impact him mentally, that would impact him emotionally, that would impact him spiritually. He was physically weak. He was hungry. He wasn't hangry, right? Some of you get hangry, right? But he was weak. When you don't eat, when you fast, you're, you're compromised mentally and emotionally and can be compromised spiritually. And this is where Jesus finds himself, and this is where Satan takes advantage and makes his move. Satan, is, Satan means adversary. Satan is the evil one. Satan is the prince of darkness. He's the god or the prince of this world. He's the father of lies. And all those titles show Satan to be the enemy of God's the oppressor of all that is good, the great promoter of evil. His aim, Satan's aim, is to be a rival of God. His desire in this moment is to have Jesus rebel against God the Father. He's weak. And so Satan is going to now pounce. And if we think about the situation Jesus finds himself in, we need to pause for a moment as well and think about Adam in the Garden of Eden who faced temptation. We need to think about the nation of Israel in the wilderness who faced temptation. And we know that, that Israel, Israel failed. We read that in the Old Testament. We think about Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam disobeyed God in the Garden. Adam disobeyed God in, in paradise. Adam disobeyed God when Adam had everything he needed or desired. Yet we'll see this morning that Jesus obeys in the harsh desolation of the wilderness. Adam could eat from any tree in the garden except for one. Jesus was denying himself food. It, 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 it's different. Jesus' testing was in a much tougher garden, if you will, than, than Adam. But Satan makes his move when Jesus is physically at his weakest. Now, the question often gets asked, and you might hear this, you might be thinking this, right? That if Jesus is, is fully God, right, could Jesus have sinned? 
right? And so if, are these temptations really just kind of hollow and meaningless because he's, he's fully God's? Right? And that, that happens. People do think that. And there, there are two sides to this. Some say, yes, Jesus could have sinned. And others say, no, he could not. And we need to unpack this very briefly. And here's where you probably might have to do homework when you get home or later this week. But the question is not if Jesus sinned, because the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus did not sin. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the question isn't if Jesus sinned. The question is, could Jesus have sins? Now, those who believe that Jesus could have sins, it's called peccability. There's a good theological term for you. Peccability, depending. And those who believe that Jesus could not have sinned are in the camp of impeccability. I believe that Jesus could not have sins. If you think about it this way, if Jesus could have sins, then that means that God could have sinned because Jesus is God's. God can't sin. He's perfectly holy. And although Jesus is fully human, Jesus was not born with the sinful nature that we are born with. But he was tempted in the way that that we are tempted. And those temptations this morning were put before him by Satan, yet Jesus remains sinless because God is incapable of sin. It goes against the very nature of, of God. To be tempted is not sinful. A person can tempt me with something that I have no desire to do, but I'm still being tempted even though I have no desire to do it. You can be tempted to do something that you have no desire to do, but you're still being tempted, so you're experiencing that temptation. There are two ways to look at temptation. Someone suggesting to you or offering you something to do that you know to be sinful. Or number two, that you can find yourself being tempted to the degree that you actually consider participating in that sinful act. Okay, so you can, I could be tempted with something that I have no desire to do. That's the first example. The second example is I could be tempted by someone to do something that I'm kind of contemplating and thinking about, like, geez, I could probably pull that off and do that. Right? Those are two different ways to, to look at temptation. They're slightly different, but they're important. Because that second definition, right, when I'm tempted and I start playing out the scenarios in my mind about the possible pleasures of that temptation, of that sin, the consequence, I'm weighing the consequences. So like, if I do this, this may happen, but if I don't, this may happen. Is it worth the risk to do this? Right In that moment, right when I'm contemplating those things in my mind, I haven't even acted yet, it's just in my mind, I have crossed the line into sin. Jesus taught this right, when it came to murder. 
right? If you hate the person in your heart, you have murdered them. If you lust after a woman in your mind, you have committed adultery with them. That's not what is happening here with Jesus. He's being, he's in that first definition. It's being brought to him, but he has no desire to fulfill that temptation that is being brought to him. He didn't have a sin nature. So Satan is proposing these things to Jesus, but Jesus has no inner desire to participate in the sin, but he's still being tempted like we are, but he remains sinless. We have to remember that we don't have to experience something in order to to understand it. We can be fully aware of an experience, we can be fully aware of sin, but not having ever partaken of it. And if we think about our God, we think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was God, He knows everything about everything. He understands what sin is. He understands what it's like to be tempted. That means that Jesus can sympathize with us in our temptations because He knows what it means to be tempted. But He doesn't know what it's like to to sin. So He was tempted. The temptations were real. And so this is one way that our Savior can identify with us as our sympathetic great high priest. So let's get to this first temptation, verses 3 and verses 4. Satan says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, when Satan says, if you are the Son of God, um, Satan knows full well who Jesus is. He has no issue with Jesus' identity. He knows that He is the Son of God. He's not doubting that fact. He's trying to bait Him. And it's a little bit probably snarky, right? If, and let's assume that you are the Son of God, right? Turn this stone into bread. Right, the temptation is, is, very, is very subtle. Jesus is hungry. He hasn't had anything to eat in 40 days. And so Satan says, okay, well, let's go with some, some food here. Let's see what you'll do. Why don't you satisfy your hunger through a miracle? And to do this would then bring into question God's faithfulness, God's protection, and the way that God the Father was leading His Son, Jesus. The devil, what the devil was doing here, very subtly, was suggesting to Jesus, the Son, that His Father had abandoned Him, and so He better look out for Himself. Why should you, the Son of God, suffer in the wilderness like this? Your Father doesn't love you. You haven't anything to eat in 40 days. 
turn this stone into bread. You can do it. Just do it. If you're the Son of God, do it. You can, listen, you can, look, at, you can look after yourself better than your Father is looking after you. So just, just do it. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we go back to the garden, and we go back to the serpent in the garden before Adam and Eve, telling them what? You can't trust in God's provision. You can't trust God to take care of you. You can do it better yourself. Eat from that tree. But in response to this, Jesus quotes a portion of Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, man does not live by, by bread alone. The full verse is this. Let me read it. It says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord's. Deuteronomy 8.3, in context, has to do with God's provision for Israel. God had promised that he would protect Israel. God had demonstrated his protection by providing manna for them. And Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, was reminding Israel, do not doubt the goodness of God. As you're entering the promised land, do not doubt it. You'll be tempted to, but do not doubt the goodness of God. Jesus had the promise that He was God's Son. That happened at His baptism. This is my beloved Son, the Father says. So surely the Father would protect the Son and provide for the Son. So if food was an issue, the Father would provide food for His beloved Son. The focus has to be on God's promises and God's faithfulness to provide. In that moment... For Jesus to provide food for Himself, Jesus the Son would be operating independently of God the Father. And that's something that the Son just can't do. John 4.34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. That's the subtlety of the temptation, right? Just to, to doubt the goodness of God and provide for yourself. And by Jesus saying, man does not live by bread alone, it's a very short and concise and precise and to the point, point response, which basically is saying, to satisfy your own daily needs is not as important as trusting and obeying God. Remain fixed, remain focused on His faithfulness. So we think about our own lives, we think about application here with this first temptation. How often am I, how often are we tempted? to not trust God, 
to not rely on His faithfulness, to not obey Him, and to try to satisfy our own daily needs and desires by our own power and in our own ways. Temptation number two, verses five through eight. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him and said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus has given a perspective of all the kingdoms, of all the earthly power, of all the earthly glory, and Satan offers this to him. Right now, now we can sit here and we, we can debate about, right, the legitimacy of whether Satan could actually fulfill that promise to give him all that he says he would give Jesus, right? Because we know, right, that, that all authority belongs to, to God and to not Satan. So at best, Satan's offer is an oversell, right? He's, he's promising to give something he can't give. And at worst, it's a flat-out lie. We know that Satan is the father of lies. But, but the meaning of the offer is clear, that if Jesus would bow down before him once, if Jesus would just take a knee in submission to Satan, Satan is offering Jesus rule of the world and the glory that comes with that. It's not just a momentary action, right? It's, it's, it's a decision, it's an action that would change the life of Jesus. But it's an action that would be a defection from God's. Jesus would be in that moment accepting what? The authority of Satan, if he actually even has it, right? Over the authority from the Father, right? It's an empty, dead-end offer. Or, Jesus can wait, knowing that He will receive power, that He will be exalted. Just as the Father has promised Him, and in the Father's good and perfect timing. Right? It's in temptation to break the first commandment. It's a temptation right, to claim authority and rule apart from God. It's a temptation for Jesus, the Son, to turn His back on the Father and go for something that only the Father can give Him. That's what Satan did when he fell. He wanted the glory that only belonged to, to God's. But, and we see in this temptation that all the devil really desires is, is glory and honor. He wants to be praised. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be the center of the universe. That's what got him kicked out of heaven in the first place. His longing is to displace, is to displace God, to, to dethrone God and to take the seat that God has for His own. Right, And that is utterly... Futile. 
Satan knows that he is defeated. Satan knows that he's talking to the Son of God's. But he's still craving worship that will never be met. Wounded animals can be the most dangerous. Right? Armories that know that they're defeated can be the most dangerous because they just don't care anymore. They're just going to take anybody out that they can. It's the same idea here with Satan. He's just trying to take out anybody he can. That's why the words of Romans 1, verses 22 to 25, are so, are so stark. And I'm not going to read all of them. I'll, just, I'll read part of verse 22, and then I'll skip to verse 25. Paul says that claiming to be wise, they became fools because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That's the temptation that is before Jesus, to worship Satan, to worship the creature, not the creator, to take authority from the creature, not the creator. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve. Jesus knew that there was only one who could make such an offer. And it wasn't the one he was talking to. Right? It was his father that could make that offer, not, not Satan. And he knew this. Satan, Jesus knew, right? He's fully, he's fully God's. Right? He knew that he would display sovereign authority. He knew that he would rule and reign on the earth, and he knew that that authority only comes from his Father. And there was no offer that Satan could make to him that would persuade him to turn his back on his Father and worship a creature and try to get power from a creature when it wasn't even his to give. You think back to Genesis 3. And Adam and Eve. And that subtle claim and the temptation of Adam and Eve where Satan says, hey, listen, you can claim authority for yourself. You can rule and reign by yourself. You don't need God. And Jesus is saying, worship and service should be given only to, to God the Father. He, it's He and He alone that's worthy of our allegiance. So we think about our own lives and those times when we might try to take authority and power for ourselves, and sometimes that means we have to maybe step over somebody or step on somebody in order to grasp it. It's the same kind of idea here with that second temptation. We're not trusting in God's perfect timing and realizing that He's the one who is sovereign and rules and reigns perfectly. And we have the third temptation, verses 9 to 12. Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem and sets Him on the pinnacle of the temple. This was probably, they believed, probably the, the southeast corner of the temple would be overlooking the Kidron Valley. Um, it would have been probably about 450 feet above the ground. Um, so it was one of the highest points in the temple. 
And Jesus says to him, if you are the son of God, right, here's that little snarky baiting kind of comments, throw yourself down from here for it is written. Oh, said so he's getting good now. Okay, you've been quoting scripture at me, Jesus. I'm going to quote scripture at you. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answers him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is a temptation surrounding the faithfulness of God to protect His own and to trust that God would protect His own, right? This happens at the temple. The temple for Israel was a picture of the presence of God, God's closeness. It was in the temple that you would find refuge and you would find protection. So surely, if God's going to rescue anyone anywhere, He's going to rescue someone at, at, at the temple because that's where He is. See, Satan knows what he's doing. He's crafty. And to build this case, right, Satan quotes from Psalm 91. Now, he, he grossly misuses those verses it's misapplied in an attempt to, to manipulate Jesus. Because right? Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, it doesn't mean that a person, that a person should attempt to force God to protect them. That's, that's not what those verses mean. That's what Satan's asking Jesus to do. Hey, listen, if you're the Son of God, God will protect you, so force Him to protect you. That's not what Psalm 91 is about. Psalm 91 is about the assurance that God will protect. God promises to keep His children safe. He will do it. God's faithfulness should not be put to the test, but should be understood as a given. Right? God's faithfulness should not be put to the test, but should be understand, understood as a given. He will protect His own. That's what Psalm 91 is about. You see how Satan just twists it? And so Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The rest of that verse is, as you tested him at Massah. So we think about the Old Testament context of, of, of Massah, right? This is Moses again writing in Deuteronomy, and it's reminding Israel as they enter into the promised land not to test God as they had done at Massah, right? And what happened there, right, is that Israel kind of, they assumed, yes, that God was guiding them and delivering them, but what were they doing? They were complaining, right, that they should have never come out of Egypt. Yes, they had freedom, and yes, I guess we have manna, but Jesus, that's really not enough, right? That, that's a Massah. And so Jesus is comparing this temptation to, to, to that event in the history of Israel, And so, in effect, it's like saying, listen, I, I, I think you will take care of me as a son. I mean, you, you have so far, 
I, I think you'll continue to do that, but, but just to be sure, I'm going to put myself in a situation where you have to take care of me, but it's on my own terms. You see, you see what's happening there? See what Satan is asking him to do? Well, you know God's faithful, but just, just, just make sure that he's faithful. Do it on your own terms. Question the faithfulness of God. It's planting those seeds of doubt. Demanding miraculous protection when it is not needed is not faith, it's not loyalty, it's, it's sin. If God has promised to take care of His children, to protect His children, God is going to take care of His children. He will. You don't need to test that. He said He would do it. He's going to do it. He's faithful to His promises. So if you're, if you're testing God's faithfulness, that implies what? You, you, you doubt God's faithfulness. Yeah, I know He said it, but maybe I just need a little more information. Maybe need a little bit more proof. It's actually unbelief masquerading as faith. Satan is saying, hey, you're the son of God. He'll protect you. Throw yourself off here and prove it. And Jesus says by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, I'll have to. He'll protect me. How often do we find ourselves in situations where we doubt the faithfulness of God to protect and to care for us? There's examples as I was studying this and preparing this and as I was just standing up front here and, and looking at the chairs in this sanctuary, there's example of example of example of situations that people find themselves in in this church family where they could doubt the protection and the faithfulness of God. Don't. Don't. He protects his children. He'll do it. It may not look the way you want it to look, but he'll do it. Don't doubt for a moment. Then we read in verse 13 that when the devil had ended, had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Matthew's account is, is fantastic. Because Matthew's account tells us this, I love this, and this is the third temptation. Jesus said to Satan, be gone. Right? For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and only Him shall you, you serve. Right? It's just this like, leave, get, get out. Satan leaves, but Satan's waiting, right, for an opportune time. This does not mean, 
okay, that all of a sudden Jesus finds himself in a Satan-free zone. Right? The devil and his demons will remain very active in opposing the ministry of Jesus. They're going to try to disrupt and distort and to wreak havoc for the entire span of his earthly ministry. But that opportune time will come in Luke 22. Jesus enters into Jerusalem and is on his way to the cross, the events of that holy week, when Satan right, goes into Judas and Judas leaves to betray him. Right? Satan again will ramp it up all around the events of the crucifixion of Jesus. And you remember back as we started about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, and God used that what? For His glory. And God used that work of Satan to what? Bring salvation to His people. To accomplish His purposes. What, God, what Jesus shows us here in, in, these, in, this, in, this, in these three temptations, right, that, that he's, he's fully qualified to, to represent us. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He's experienced that temptation. He knows what temptation feels like. There was a, a commentator, a commentary that I was reading, and I don't remember who it was. But he said, when, when, when somebody gives into temptation, you don't understand the full weight of that temptation because you caved, right? And there was, there was more temptation behind that, but you, you gave in and you fell early. For someone not to give in temptation, you know the full weight of the temptation. So Jesus knows the full weight of that temptation. He wasn't going to sin. He couldn't, but he knows what it's like to be tempted. So he is our great high priest. He is fully qualified to represent us and to point us to the way and lead us to victory. It's his faithfulness that is a model for us to be held up as we face temptation and we find ourselves in trials and under pressure. Right? We can choose to walk in the ways of God's. And don't miss that in every temptation, Jesus overcomes it by what? Not just the knowledge of Scripture, but the application of Scripture. The Scripture had authority in the life of Jesus. So the way to avoid falling into temptation is not to go your own way, not to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and try harder and try to do it on your own. The way to avoid temptation is to trust God's faithfulness, to humble yourself, to be obedient to His Word, to know His words, to worship Him and Him alone to refuse to create your own benchmarks of His faithfulness and of His goodness and just to know that He is faithful and that He is good and that He can be trusted. It's walking in His ways. It's trusting Him unswervingly with your life even when it means 
suffering, even when it means you're uncomfortable and you have to sacrifice and you feel pain, you continue to trust your God because He is God. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank You for this morning. Lord, I thank You for the truth of Your words. Lord, I thank You for the example of Your Son. Who shows us how much authority and prominence Your Word had in His life. Who shows us how we can best battle temptation. Well, this is why we know that we need the gospel each and every day of our lives. Because we are prone to wander. We are a fickle people who think we can navigate this life on our own, by our own means, and by our own strength. And that is foolishness and that is folly. So, Lord, I pray that if we find ourselves in that situation in our lives this day, that we would confess that and we, that we would ask for your forgiveness and we would repent and that we would trust you. I pray this in your name. Amen. <laughs>